Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. And let's kick off with a look, as we always do, at what's hot in the world of science. Sarah. Right, well, starting off, there's been a study published this week in the journal PLOS Pathogens where scientists attempted and succeeded in creating a malaria-proof mosquito. This is really exciting because malaria kills about a million people every year, most of them children. It's caused by a parasite called plasmodium that infects and replicates inside female Anopheles mosquitoes before being passed on to the next person. And the incubation period in the mosquito is about 10 to 14 days. So the group from the University of Arizona, led by Michael Reilly, genetically engineered Anopheles mosquitoes to increase the expression of a particular gene for a protein in the gut called AKT. The researchers compared mosquito siblings with and without the engineered gene by feeding both groups an artificial blood meal containing plasmodium. Ten days later, the team checked the guts of the mosquitoes to see if any of the plasmodium had successfully formed oocysts the next stage in their development. Up to 99% of the mosquitoes that were heterozygous for the engineered gene, which means they had one copy of it, were found to be parasite-free. And all of the homozygous mosquitoes, which means they had two copies of the gene, were parasite-free. And there was also a 20% reduction in their lifespan. And this is a really important point because it takes time for the plasmodium to develop in the mosquito to become infectious. So shortening the lifespan of the vector is an efficient way of preventing infection. But what does this mean in the global scale, the global fight against malaria? Well, Reilly's eventual aim is that engineered mosquitoes will be released and breed with wild populations, introducing the engineered gene to reduce plasmodium infection and shorten mosquito lifespan. This is obviously quite a long way off, but the study is really quite an encouraging first step. They don't yet know, though, why the AKT, when you put the level up in the mosquito, actually makes it resistant to malaria, do they? No, it's to do with insulin and the insulin in the human blood and the way that that affects the response of the mosquito. But no, they're still not quite sure exactly what it is about the gene. But I suppose even though they don't really know how it works, it's still a good sign. Well, the fact that they've found this and found that it does work means that now there's some handle on the problem and it's a fertile area to explore because it's obviously really important for how malaria affects a mosquito. So regardless of whether we can make a mosquito which is uh, resistant to malaria, it's a, a new thing to start looking at to solve this problem, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. And it's really important as well because there are a lot of strains of malaria that are becoming resistant to the quinine-based drugs that we're giving people. So looking at other areas to solve it is a great idea. And like you say, uh, several hundred million cases a year and more than a million people dying, most of them children. So very important, serious disease. Now, also this week, talking about infectious diseases, vaccines are a really good way to prevent the spread of infectious diseases. And scientists have shown that, in fact, a dose of genes from bacteria living in the Arctic could hold the key to making live attenuated vaccines against common bacterial pathogens. So what do I mean by that? Well, the best vaccines that we can give people are what are called live vaccines. This is where you take a weakened form of the bug that you wish to immunise someone against and you put that into the person and because it creates a sort of natural infection, albeit an attenuated one, the person's immune system therefore gets to see the entire genetic repertoire of that organism, if you like, how it grows and what sorts of things it produces when it infects the body. So you get a very good broad-spectrum immune response against that particular pathogen. The problem is that when scientists try to make so-called attenuated or weakened forms of these bacteria or viruses, 
there's a danger that they can undergo what's called reversion. They can undo the weakening effect and they become virulent again. And this could make the people that you're vaccinating become very sick, as well as putting into the environment that risky organism. So is there another way? Well, Barry Duplantis, who's a researcher at the University of Victoria in Canada, has got a paper in the journal PNAS this week. And he and his colleagues have decided that a fertile approach is to go to the Arctic. Now, their reasoning is as follows. There are organisms, bacteria, that live in the Arctic that have evolved there for millions, if not billions of years, to tolerate really, really low temperatures. So they carry genes which are essential for them to live, which will only work at really low temperatures. But many of the common bacteria that are pathogenic to you and me also rely on some of the same sorts of genes. So if you take the genes from the bacteria in the Arctic and put some of those essential genes into common pathogens, the common pathogens now can only grow at very low temperatures. And what they were able to demonstrate is that you can put these bacteria carrying these Arctic genes instead of their own genes into a peripheral body part of a rodent, for example, where the tissue is cooler and the bacteria will just about grow there. And as they do so, they prime the immune system And that means that if you come along three weeks later with what would be a lethal dose of the same wild-type, nasty form of pathogen, the animals are completely protected. And they've done this and shown this can work for Francisella, which is a pathogenic bacteria that causes a human disease called tularemia. It's almost universally fatal. Nasty thing, that. They've also done it with Salmonella, common cause of food poisoning, of course, and typhoid, major cause of death all over the world, and also mycobacteria the uh, strain of bugs that uh, include TB in their number. So important bacterial problem, and this could be one very clever way to produce live vaccines that are safe, because those genes that come from the Arctic have got millions of years of evolution, making them very, very sensitive to uh, hot and cold, and it's very difficult for a bug just growing in uh, a peripheral tissue for a short space of time to unevolve all that work that evolution has done. Well, it's exciting that something could solve a problem for so many different diseases in one fell swoop, I suppose. Isn't evolution an amazing thing? The fact that uh, you've got all the bacteria in the world and they're all relying on a small cross-section, maybe a 100 genes or so, that are essential to them and which you can replace with a copy from a bacterium from a totally different environment and change the way the pathogen works. Fantastic. Very interesting. Well, now we're moving to the oceans and it's uh, it's been pretty rare in recent times to find a positive story about life in the oceans. But this week, researchers from the University of Bern in Norway have shown that there is a species that is unexpectedly thriving. The study published in Science is about a fish called the bearded goby, Suflagobius bibarbatus. And it Catchy. seems Yes, I know, it just rolls off the tongue. And it seems to be an unexpected winner in an ecosystem that's been severely damaged, called the Benguela upwelling system off the coast of Namibia. In the 1960s, aggressive overfishing combined with environmental changes in the area led to a collapse of the sardine population and a shift in the structure of the whole ecosystem. There was a massive rise in jellyfish numbers and the seabed was covered in this sulphurous low-oxygen mud layer. And it was pretty much considered to be a dead ecosystem. But the team led by Anne Utna-Palm found that the bearded gobies are just thriving there. They showed through a series of actually pretty elegant behavioural and physiological experiments that the gobies have been able to hide in the low-oxygen mud on the seafloor, so hiding from predators, and feed on the bacteria in the mud. They turn down their metabolism to survive in the low oxygen sort of sludge and then ascend up into the more oxygen-rich layers of the water under the safety of darkness to digest the food. 
They also munch away on the jellyfish, returning what were previously thought to be dead-end resources back to the food chain, by then becoming prey themselves to larger fish. So it's quite exciting because they could be seen as a bit of a stabilising factor, buffering local fisheries that are just starting to recover against environmental changes in the future. And it's, it's very promising because it shows that it is possible for an apparently collapsed marine ecosystem to recover. I think you just have to accept that nature is a wonderful thing and it's also very resilient. Thank God it is too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Well, just to finish off, I'm told, because I don't wear them myself, that if you wear high heels for a period of time to go into more flat-footed footwear can lead to significant amounts of discomfort. Well, now we know, scientifically speaking, why. Because Marco Nerici, who's a researcher from Manchester Metropolitan University, has published a paper in the Journal of Experimental Biology this week explaining the reason. He recruited 80 women off the streets of Manchester with an ad in a local newspaper. The inclusion criteria were they had to have been wearing heels that were five centimetres or more uh, high for at least two years. And out of that 80, he found 11 women who did indeed fulfil the criterion that they had pain when they walked around in more flat-footed shoes. And to find out why, he ultrasound scanned the calf muscles of these women and found that the muscle fibres were 13% shorter than control women who'd never worn or didn't wear high heels regularly. And then he did an MRI scan on the tendon, the Achilles tendon in these women, and found that between the two groups of control women and heel wearers, the tendons were the same length but they were actually stiffer and thicker in the high heel wearing women. So the reason that when the high heel wearers stop wearing their high heels that they get the pain is because the muscle is much shorter, the tendon is stiffer and can't stretch sufficiently to compensate for the fact that the foot is now flatter, so it gets uncomfortable. So that's the price that people are paying for fashion. Sarah, I won't ask you if you wear high heels. I don't, actually. I, I, I get the complete opposite problem. I find high heels are actually so painful I can't even wear them. I feel, you know, I've stuck with my flat shoes, I'm afraid. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.